This is Father Gregory Pine. And this is Father Jacob Bertrand Jansik. And welcome to God's Playing. Thanks to all those who support us. If you enjoy the show, please consider making a monthly donation on Patreon. Be sure to like and subscribe to God's Planning wherever you listen to your podcasts. Okay, for this episode of Guest Planning, we're very delighted to be joined by Dr. Matthew Bruninger. Thanks so much for joining us on the show. Thanks for having me. Okay, so folks may know you or will know you from contributions that you've made in a variety of different, you know, like Catholic outlets. So I'm thinking of like Pints with Aquinas or Seek recently where we crossed each other's paths, but I was on a mission to get like a shot of espresso. So I didn't stop slash we didn't stop. But um, for those who don't know you, <laughs> that's just that's normal pace for those who don't you know try you to walk down the street and you can't keep up with father gregory he's very quick yeah he quick yeah man. he looked like he was a person who walked fast naturally i don't I've know if it's natural that. but it's forced upon people so. <laughs> yeah it was once observed to me by another dominican friar oh look at that guy it's like a it's like a soul dragging a body around and i said hey <laughs> i'm flattered kind of um okay so for those who don't know you would you just say a word you know, who you are, where you're from, what you do. Sure. Um, my name is uh, Dr. Matt Bruninger. I'm an associate professor of psychology at Franciscan University of Steubenville in Steubenville, Ohio. Um, I'm also the founder and clinical director of Wellspring Counseling, Coaching and Consulting, which is, um, uh, as the name indicates, it's a private therapy practice and um, consulting firm um, where we try to help people you know, grow spiritually and help dioceses and parishes and religious orders um, with any mental health concerns and human formation issues, that sort of thing. Um, and I also recently published a book. I have a, a new book out called Finding Freedom in Christ, Healing Life's Hurts. A study at the intersection of it. So it's sort of a popular level book where I try to bring together some theology, some psychology, some of the wisdom from the 12 steps and um, my my story of how I think healing happens. So. Nice. Okay, that's beautiful. Um, okay. And and I think that yeah, in this episode we're going to focus a little bit about healing, or we're focus sure. a little bit on healing. I struggle with prepositions; they're tough for me. Um, and it's interesting because we had Sister Miriam James Hydland on a few months back, uh, and sure. we talked about healing, and we had sure. Sister Bethany Madonna on. And we talked about healing and they, and they brought very different perspectives, um, complementary. And I'm hoping that we can do something similar from your kind of clinical vantage, but also, yeah. you know, your personal experience. So maybe we just start like lay the land. It seems to me that 21st century, we talk a lot about healing. It seems like we have a pretty well-developed vocabulary and grammar of wounds and woundedness. Um, maybe. I imagine there are some advantages to that, some disadvantages to that. What would you see would be the advantages and maybe some of the disadvantages? Yeah. So, I mean, obviously some of the advantages of, of language gives you the ability to communicate experience. And so some of the advantages of having, you know, a grammar or language around the stuff is it, it has in some ways allowed us to communicate particular experiences, uh, hurts, pain, um, psychological, you know, distress to communicate it in with greater clarity and greater precision. Um, in some ways though, um, I think grammar can become like sort of hyperdeveloped to the point where language can sort of become hyperdeveloped to the point where you're maybe making distinctions that um, don't add much clarity. 
or you have concepts or terms that begin to lose any substance because you've, you've cut the pie so many times. Um, and maybe relatedly, um, sometimes the, the actual weight or content of those words, because we have, we're so familiar with this language, the content sort of becomes stripped. So you'll hear people talk all the time, oh, um, so-and-so is such a narcissist, or oh, so-and-so is, um, gosh, I've got such bad OCD. And so we start to use, you know, terms that do have a sort of, have some precision to them, um, like colloquially, and that can confuse things. But but I think there are, ben I mean, there's benefits to having language around this stuff for communication purposes. But, but I see it get sometimes trivialized or begin to lose some of its substance because we have so many terms. I mean, I, I'm a clinician. I'm an academic and I have a hard time keeping up with and, you know, students will say, Oh, Dr. Bruinger, have you heard of this type of OCD? And I'm like, nope. I mean, you know, it's just, um, in some ways, sometimes the, the language advances so rapidly, it doesn't always latch onto concepts or constructs that are going to have legs. And so I think oftentimes we course correct over time, but that can be problematic. One of the, I, I mean, I'm, as most of our listeners probably know, maybe don't, I don't know, but I, I'm a pastor, so I deal with, um, or I deal with, that makes it sound like my parishioners are people to deal with. I work with, I'm surrounded by a whole host of people, generations, you know, this sort of thing. But in, before I was a pastor, I was a vocation director. So working with young men, thinking about the order. Mm. And before that was mm. in campus ministry. Um, so I have, I guess, more experience on this sort of you know, college age level. And one of the things here, we, we have our parish in Hanover, New Hampshire, but also our community runs the chaplaincy at Dartmouth. And one of the, one of the things that I think is not just an experience at Dartmouth, I'm sure at Franciscan, but universities, there's, as this, as you were explaining this sort of proliferation of language and like micro diagnoses yeah. or that kind of thing, but yes. also it seems to parallel with a sort of um, the need, like a hyper, uh, like a hyperbolic need to sort of have a particular diagnosis for what can, you know, in my mind, I, I like to keep things simple. It's like, there's the common human experience. We're broken in these pretty common ways. And, but everybody, there's this need to sort of have this kind of hyper micro kind of identification that in my yeah. radically amateur opinion seems to compound difficulties of like of of healing and understanding and that sort of thing i don't know what your thoughts are on that but um yeah just the as you were saying the use of language the use of trying to do all like yeah do you have thoughts on on that yeah look i think you're right in some in some sense um and and i'm sure you could trace i'm sure there's a number of causes for this but in some ways it, it does seem like um there's been a, a general sense or loss of identity and one way to carve out a space for identity is to sort of have this clear label for yourself. Like, mm. This is who I am. I'm, I've got this. And it gives you a, a feeling. And by the way, you have to have so many different versions of this thing because you, we want to feel unique. Mm -hmm. We want to feel sort of irrepeatable and irreplaceable. Um, and if you're not sort of getting that in the, the right way from the appropriate source, um, one way to try to get it is to carve out this sort of this, this space with language. But the problem is, you know, if I've got depression, old run of the mill depression, 
doesn't make me unique or particularly give me the kind of identity, sense of identity I want. And so I want to be perceived as um, having a certain uniqueness. And so it's not just depression. It's, you know, I've got this particular thing or I've got, I mean, and you just see this, this sort of, I like that word micro diagnosis. Like you've got just, it becomes so niche and cliche. Um, but I think it's actually, I think it's people grasping for a sense of identity that, you know, the, the downside to that is, and I'm always very careful to diagnose. Um, I think actually diagnosing, giving somebody a diagnosis and telling them their diagnosis has to be a thoughtful thing because some people will over identify with that diagnosis and draw the wrong conclusions about it. Um, or they'll, they'll identify it with it in such a way that it will actually hinder healing. And so, oh, Dr. B, I can't do that. I've got generalized anxiety. And so I'm, I'm actually oftentimes very careful to, to even give diagnoses unless I'm being you know, asked to give a formal diagnosis for an evaluation. And then even when I do, I want the person to understand generally what that diagnosis entails and what they can expect. Because while there has been a lot of language, there's sort of a layman's understanding of these things. There's a lot of misunderstanding around it as well, right? And so people will adopt these terms or these diagnoses um, without understanding that they can be changed, that there's a strong social or environmental component, that it says nothing about their capacities or, you know, like, so I become very hesitant to give diagnoses, a diagnosis. Um, but I think the way it's, we're seeing it proceed culturally has to do with identity and grasping for a sense of unique identity. But that's yeah. my gut react. Um, I have many thoughts. They are all garbled. Um, here is one thought that is slightly less garbled. Yeah. Um, I, I think that it seems to be the case that many people feel that they are held back from the fullness of life in some way, shape or form. It's like anytime you go to a Catholic event, somebody quotes to you, John 10, 10, we're promised this abundant life. And then we compare it to our present experience. We feel ourselves mm. like mm. we're missing out. And then we need to have a way by which, like you said, we need to have a handle for capturing this experience so that we can lay hold of it. And at the very least have some kind of control over it. And uh, I, I think often of this line, and I've forgotten who said it, maybe it's Charles Piggy, but early 20th century French author who said, modern man is haunted by the fear that real life is elsewhere. Um, and I, th I think that the way in which we identify with like our weaknesses or our woundedness, and even in a certain sense, the way that you see the victim kind of lionized mm -hmm. or valorized in the 21st century, it's like we want to have a way by which to describe why or how we've come to be held back. Yeah. So like, okay, in your clinical experience yeah. and the way in which you walk with people, how do you lead yeah. them into this proffered fullness of life? Is it an ideal? Is it something like an ideal? Is it, is it more pragmatic? Like what, what are the kind of steps that you would take or the kind of conversations that you might have? Yeah. So I'll give you an idea. And in some ways, how I sit with somebody therapeutically face-to-face -face is different than I sort of describe it in the book. I mean, there, there's overlap, but the book is a self-help book, but the way I actually do it when I'm sitting with somebody so I'll give you my, my general thoughts are, I think very often so many of our problems can be traced back to ways, things that we've learned, right? So let me say this, things that we've learned implicitly or explicitly because of past experiences 
that we then carry into our way of being in the world. We carry it into how we relate to other people. And so there's this fascinating body of research out there on, um, on memory. And the idea is that, you know, we have, we have episodic memory, which is like what happened. And then we've got semantic memory, which is like what we've learned about ourselves, others in the world as a result of that event. And then those get encoded. And then we go through life and we're sort of having those memories and the, the attending emotions activated. And I think what oftentimes happens is many of us um, try to avoid the activation of those memories because there's oftentimes unpleasant feelings associated with them. And so most of our life, I tend to think most of our problems are a result of avoidance. That, that so many of our problems can be traced back to wanting to avoid bad feelings, bad memories, bad physiological experiences. Oh, when I do that, my stomach turns. I don't want to do that. When I do that, I feel shaky. I don't want to do that. Um, we avoid. And, and the reason I bring that up, Father, this sort of rambling roundabout way is because I think what the fullness of life is, is I think that healing is really well encapsulated. Galatians 5.13 says, For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters, only don't use that freedom for things of the flesh, but use it to love and serve one another. That 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 healing is the freedom to go wherever God calls you so that you can love the way he created you to love. So, so that's, and, and I realize different people have different definitions of healing, but my definition of healing is to have the freedom to go where God calls you so he can love, so that you can love the way he's calling you to love. But you might notice there that in my definition of healing, it's not freedom from suffering. It's not freedom from distress. It's the freedom to go wherever God calls you into love and to sometimes bring your distress with you, to bring your suffering with you. And so I actually think the fullness of life on this side of the beatific vision, and that's the caveat, the fullness of life actually um, entails us carrying a cross and bringing suffering with us, but it's freedom to follow God's voice. It's freedom to love despite our suffering. And I think Paul is an example of this. Um, oftentimes we think of fullness of life as the absence of suffering. St. Paul has this thorn in the flesh, right? And he asked God to remove it. And St. Paul's not, you, you know, he's not me. Um, he's not like some schlep from Scranton, Pennsylvania, who like, you know, uh, who's like, I love you, Lord. And then I have to fast on Ash Wednesday. And I'm like, oh, you know, I'm like, measuring out whether this meal is as big as this meal so I can maximize my food. St. Paul was punched, kicked, spit on, shipwrecked, chained. And he says, Lord, remove this. And our Lord doesn't remove the thorn in the flesh. And so the question is like, does, does our Lord leave St. Paul unhealed? And I think the answer is no. You know, he says, Paul, my grace is made perfect in you, right? My grace is sufficient for you. My, my strength is shown in your weakness. I think what he's saying there is, I'm not gonna remove that thorn, but I'm gonna give you the freedom to go wherever I call you to go and bring it with you. Whatever that thorn is. I know some people will say, well, it was, it was lust. Well, imagine God's, you know, our Lord says, okay, Paul, you're going to Rome. And he's like, ah, I can't go to Rome, Lord, prostitutes, you know? But I'll go to, I'll go to Galatia, you know? 
I think a lot of us actually spend our life doing this, right? So whatever your thorns are, right? And if you have to edit the word prostitute, I'll feel free. No, no, it's full send. <laughs> you know? but, I'm just but, thinking of the homely women of Galatia right now. Yeah, those poor, those poor schleps in Galatia, right? So we all have thorns, and right, our thorns are oftentimes um, our wounds. They're wounds, and I think wounds are failure. I think wounds arise when we're not loved the way we were created to be loved. But we all have thorns, and most of us go through life trying to orchestrate life and manipulate life in such a way as not to have our thorns touched. And, and as a result of that, we're not free. And think about all the subtle ways we do this, right? So I might have this thorn around um, like not feeling like people like me. And so when I walk in a room, I'm charismatic, I'm vibrant, I'm funny, I make it, right? That's my way of controlling and manipulating the room so that my thorn doesn't get pressed. Somebody else might have a, the same, a similar thorn and their way of dealing with it is to totally withdraw. Like people won't, people can't hurt me. They won't harm me. They won't make fun of me if I, if I'm shy and hiding in a corner, but whichever extreme you fall on, you're still a slave to, to the thorn. You're not free. So if God wants me to sit quietly in a room, but I can't, cause I have to make everyone like me, like I'm a slave to my thorn. I'm not free. Um, if God wants me to have a conversation with somebody, but I can't because that means I have to put myself out there and use words and I'm afraid they're going to think I'm stupid and I'm not free. I think the fullness of life on this side of the beatific vision is, is Pauline. It's having the freedom to go wherever God calls you and to love the way he wants you to love and to bring your thorn with you. Now, sometimes God might remove the thorn. He, he has and he does. But I worry that too many of the healing texts that we read focus on the, the total removal of the thorn. And they don't recognize that we're promised the cross, the side of the beatific vision. And St. Paul's thorn is a cross. And if we spend our entire lives trying to get rid of our thorns, we're actually living like a, thor a thornocentric life rather than a Christocentric mm -hmm. life. You know, like... Hey, how can I get rid of it? Ooh, what do I need to do to minimize this? Oh, what? Do, no, pick your head up. Look at Christ. I ask him to remove whatever thorns get in my way of me doing whatever he asks of me today. That's what I ask. God, get rid of the thorns that prevent me from doing whatever you're going to ask. Give me whatever I need to do your will radically. And then I bring with me some of the, the negative thoughts and the self-doubt and the anxiety. I still get really anxious before I speak. I think God wants me to do this. So I'm going to bring my anxiety with me, you know? Anyway. One of the things that, well, you mentioned this idea of identity. And as you're talking about the thorn and as we were talking about before this, the sort of, I don't know, I guess I use the word micro diagnoses. How much? A lot I of guess the question. I'm yeah, using that in my next paper, Father. Okay. Just give me, just, I, you don't need to cite me. I just Insight. need the royalty fees. You know, that's all. So yeah, <laughs> that's all I need. Um, how much should we, this is, yeah, it's, I guess in some way, this topic I've encountered, I don't know, I'm not going to talk about my own life. So I've encountered with other people and talking about their crosses and their difficulties and that sort of thing. How, what's the relationship between 
what should be the relationship between our sort of identity coming to know ourselves, you know, coming to know ourselves in Christ, coming to know ourselves as his beloved sons and daughters, that identity being associated with with our wounds because i do think there is a tendency in this in our society as as at large to have this sort of victim mentality we always have to be kind of um you know victimized by something but where how does that like a healthy self-identity healthy association with our wounds how how do you see that coming together or like pitfalls to absolutely avoid in this kind of thing yeah this is where i think um AA is, is sort of a wild organization, man. I mean, I, I will say some of the healthy, some of the holiest people I've ever met have come out of the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. Mm-hmm. I mean, from, from needle in the arm drug addicts, from Listerine drinking drunks to the most humble, radical servants. Um, and, and so, and this is interesting, by the way, and this is a total aside, but uh, Bill Wilson was actually considering becoming Catholic. He was receiving um, catechesis from Archbishop Fulton Sheen. And his sponsor in AA was a Jesuit named Father Ed Dowling. And he has a tremendous affinity for Catholicism in many ways. Um, he had some, op- there were some hiccups and obstacles, but he has there in the big book, he, he has this, well, he has this line that basically says, look, um, you're going to go through every character defect you have, and you're going to admit it to God, yourself, and another human being. And those of you who belong to denominations that require confession, you will want to, and you must seek out the appropriate authority. Right in the big book. Hey, if you're Catholic, you better go to confession. That's what he's saying, right? Okay, why do I bring that up? I bring that up because in AA, they ask you to write down, they ask you to do an inventory. And and this inventory is on paper, and it's a list of your character defects, your shortcomings, your sins. And they ask you to start in the beginning, like as far back as you can. And that is a task that requires tremendous courage and humility. And most people um, will have a a long list if they're being honest with themselves. And they'll have some, some repeat offenders, the things they particularly struggle with over and over and over. But after you do this step in, in AA, the third step, you have a list of not only your defects of character and the people you have hurt and harmed in your life as a result of those defects of character, but you also have a list of your greatest fears and your sexual misconduct. And so it says somewhere in there in the big book, like you're now looking, you're looking at yourself on paper in black and white. And when I tried this, right, I, I, I have, I just devoured that book and I thought, I, I want to do this. And so when I did that, that's an incredibly humbling experience. But the beauty of it, the beauty of it is you're being honest with yourself for the first time. It's not, how do I want you to see me? It's not what, like, who do I project to the world or what master? It's like, this is who I am, black and white, the good, the bad, and the ugly. It's an inventory. It's a stock of what's in Matt Bruninger. But the purpose of doing that is that these are the things that are blocking you from the grace of God. And the beauty of of that task is you don't get stuck in overly identifying with them. What you do is by seeing yourself humbly, you then like reorient to the father and say, these have gotten in my way 
of being your beloved. And, and I actually think that that's the, that's like the core identity from which we have to like start. I'm beloved. Um, Father Jacques Philippe has this great line in, in his little book, The Way of Trust and Love. He says, when people know they're loved, first and foremost, this sort of interesting paradox happens. People tend not to change when they feel like there's conditional love. If you give them love first, they tend to want to change once they know they're loved. Hmm. And I think that the same is true of us. If we start from a place of belovedness, my deepest identity is beloved son or daughter of the father. I mean, that, like, I am, if I can start there, and not just here, by the way, like, like I need to steep myself in that image and I need to feel it. It needs to like kick me in the chest. And when I know that I'm beloved, then all of a sudden looking at that list, like I'm willing to look at that list honestly and with, with courage and with trust and I don't have to identify, overly identify with the particular whatevers and because I know who I am, but that knowing who I am gives me the courage to be honest about what my particular struggles are. Because if we don't know we're loved, we're dishonest or we overly identify. And by knowing I'm loved, I can admit my defects of character and hold them for what they are. That makes sense. It does indeed. Well, it begins to make sense. It's it's like yeah. as you're talking, I'm thinking of a couple of things that I read recently or that blah, 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 backstory doesn't matter. But um, this one particular line from St. John Paul II, and I think he may have said it at a World Youth Day, maybe Toronto, maybe Denver, I've forgotten. But he said, like, we are not the sum of our weaknesses and failures. We are the sum of the Father's love for us and our real capacity to become the image of his son, Jesus. Um and the first time I went to the St. John Paul II Shrine in Washington, D.C., and on the lower level, they have an exhibit which walks you through his life. And there's a room dedicated to the World Youth Days. And there's a big quotation of that particular line up on the wall as you turn a corner. And I just, I, I like saw those words and I just started crying, which at a certain point in my life didn't, didn't happen often. You know, it was like a, it was like a once yeah. a year type thing. It, it, yeah. More and more, it's become like a once a day type thing because... Whatever. We Same. all become our mothers. <laughs> <laughs> We're all Freudians deep down. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. Um, but then I'm also thinking of a line from GK Chesterton where he's talking about the optimist and the pessimist. And the optimist is like a kind of maximizer of a sort. And the pessimist doesn't lift a finger because it's all going to hell in a handbasket. And he says, I, I have no truck with either. Uh, I would self-describe more as a patriot. And he, he gives a very similar description of the transformative power of love. He's talking about this like rundown seaside resort in, in England. And he says like, it, it, it won't be transfigured just as soon as someone takes an interest in it. It will be transfigured when someone has genuinely already loved it, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. And yeah, okay. So apropos or pursuant to those two particular quotations, uh, we've been wending our way towards I identity uh, and that there's a feature of identity as individual, which is important because we don't just want to have a corporate identity. We want to know that we are loved, you know, individually. And it's paradoxical because it's not like we're loved for our characteristics. It's that we're loved because God saw not love there and put love there. Um, yes. And yet we, we like we want to know that it's it's a particular kind of love which sees me for me. 
but that's hard insofar as we worship a God who seems to love everyone equally, at least in a certain sense. Um, so maybe again, like from your clinical experience, uh, you know, from the people with whom you have walked, how do you, how do you capture this sense of one's individuality, like in the Lord, right? That, that banishes the distance that many of us experiences and experience in relationships or the kind of anonymity that many of us suffer from. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. 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 So um, I, I tend to, there's this body of literature, this idea called attachment. And attachment is the um, socio-emotional bond between a child and a caregiver. Um, and you've seen it, right? It, it's when it's when like a, you know, an 18 month old uh, goes to the park with a parent or a stranger walks in the house and there's a time of threat or distress and the child immediately turns and orients to the caregiver and runs over to them and grabs them and f- experiences safety and security. Um, we're supposed to get this from our parents. And, and if our parents, um, you know, love us the right way, we develop a secure attachment. And a secure attachment is about knowing that we are seen and we're seen deeply and that um, not only we're seen, but we're worth responding to. So this is sort of like Conrad Barz's idea of, um, um, of affirmation, like, like people respond to our fundamental goodness. They see it. We feel it when they look at us, regardless of how I'm acting, what I'm saying, if I'm dysregulated, if I'm like, I feel my goodness. And it's a particular kind of like love or relationship. So, so what do I do in in some ways? I think about the therapeutic relationship as my, like the gift I'm trying to give the person in front of me is sort of um, an attachment experience or, you know, the sort of Barzian affirmation where I want them to, to know that I see them. And what that means is that oftentimes when, when people will, like clinically, they'll start to say something. I'll be working with a client. And they'll start to say, well, you know, uh, my dad was um, sort of, you know, in and out um, of the house. He was really busy. And, or, you know, my mom, um, she was a great mom, but she like worked part-time. So she had to, and maybe they like, there's a moment of pause and then they move on, but they were great parents and they love me. And so I'll gently go back and I'll say, Hey, it felt like there was something like there was something right there. What, what just happened? Um, and, and that little gesture communicates, like, I see you. I see not just what you want me to see, but I'm seeing what's really happening sort of in your mind and heart. And I'm open to, I'm open to receiving that experience and I can hold it. I can handle it. It doesn't scare me. It's not too big for me. Um, I can hold your sadness. I can hold, and, and, and that is a very particular thing. Um, to the person in front of you. It requires you to hear their story or their narrative, how they're putting the pieces together. It, re- it requires you to respond to subtle movements of like, emotions or passions. Or, But what I'm, what I'm trying to communicate first and foremost, fundamentally in therapy is like, I see you and I want to see you. And I'm not, a, I don't want to, I don't want to collude in avoidance. Like most of the times, if you see somebody kind of well up, and then move on, you move on with them. Or most of the time, if somebody says something like, hey, my grandmother died and I was 16, I had a lot going on. And it, was, it was just a crazy time. 
and they laugh, but they're talking about their dead grandmother, most of us kind of like chuckle or smile and move on with them. And I'll say, hey, you were just laughing, but like you were talking about losing your grandmother. Well, yeah, like, I don't want to get into it. I'm just like, it might be too much for you. Or I don't know, like, if I just start talking about it, I'm going to lose it. It seems like that's a really important and powerful thing for you. I wonder if we could just, I wonder if we could just lose it then. Or I wonder if you would let me go to that place with you. In my mind, one way to give somebody the gift of identity or, or allow them to experience their identity, identity in some ways is like a mirror. Like we don't give it to ourselves. In some ways we get it by having it reflected to us. Like I know who I am to, to the degree that people in my life have reflected my goodness and my value back to me. Um, it's really easy for, for me to have a distorted image of who I am and what I am and and the people in my life who have like mirrored it back to me have like shown me really who Matt is. And that's what I try to do in therapy. I, I try to create this space where they know I see them. I can hold it. There are unique experiences and movements and, and I want that. And I can handle that. And then when they show that to me, I want to affirm them. Um, I want to give them that secure attachment experience. And oftentimes what I'm doing is I'm, I'm sort of healing these maladaptive interpersonal templates they've adopted, which are like, people don't want to hear that part of me. People can't handle that part of me. Um, if I were to lose it in front of this person, they might not respect me anymore. Um, we learn all these messages growing up. Anger is bad. This is bad. You have to be. The... And part of what I'm trying to give them is a corrective emotional experience. I'm not acting the way I think I'm the way they think I'm going to react. I want to see them. I want to see all of them. I can hold the tension of them sharing really scary, shameful, guilt-ridden experiences and still affirm their goodness. And that like communicates an individuality to them. It communicates a uniqueness. It communicates identity and it's healing. That help? Gosh, guys. Yeah. I feel uh, like the way you're looking at the screen, I'm like, oh. <laughs> no, it's soaking just... <laughs> it in. I'm we, soaking it in and trying it. not to apply my personal experiences to what you're talking about yeah, on yeah, camera. Yeah. You know, <laughs> we, Father Gregory yeah. and I, he, he mentioned hosting Sister Miriam James on the podcast. And the, I, it was the two of us, right, Father Gregory, that, that we were with her. And I, I had so. the same experience of like, just listen and don't process right now because you're being yeah, recorded. Don't cry. <laughs> don't cry yeah, right exactly. now. Don't cry. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yeah. But yeah. you know what? To, to that point, real quick, I found some of the most healing things in therapy. I've gotten to a place, you mentioned crying, Father Gregory, where I will routinely well up or cry as a therapist. And I've found that that experience is oftentimes, there it is, right? Um, it's very healing because it communicates that I see you and I see your particulars and I see your pain and I see your struggle and I see how difficult this is. And like people feel like they're being responded to. This isn't like therapist treating problem. This is like core core loquito. This is like heart speaking to heart. And that man, that can, that is, it's hard to put into words how healing that can be sometimes when somebody is moved by our distress. And I, you see me, you see me. Um, there's something called the 
the, oh, I don't remember what it's called now, the something paradox, the, I forget. But, but the paradox is this, it's that fundamentally we want to be seen and known at depth. Like we, want to, we want to be seen and known by somebody like completely, but we're also terrified that if you saw me or knew me, you'd leave me. Mm. And so, so in some ways our life is this like constant balancing act of how can I stay connected with you, but still try to get this desire to be seen met, but not have you leave me, but see enough to feel like I'm not right. And I'm trying to communicate something. I'm trying to communicate. I can see you and know you and I'll stay connected with you. And people grow in that place. It's amazing. Yeah. I, Okay, small story, and then I will conclude this episode. My apologies. Um, I was I was sitting on an airplane two months ago. I'd just been in the United States for Seek, um, and then we were all in D.C. doing a big God's planning recording session. And then I'd like, for whatever reason, I've just gotten more sensitive to jet lag. So it took me quite a few days to get onto normal U.S. time. So like the first day I was back, I woke up at 2 in the morning, and then I woke up at 2.30, then I woke up at 3. So I was just like... With each day, I was feeling more and more raw, just like a big open wound of fatigue yeah. and sadness and anger. And then like, you know, like we navigated our way through all the ups and downs of the days that came in turn. But then I, I found myself sitting on an Austrian Airlines, you know, like plane at Dulles. Um, and I was just like, just like all these emotions were just washing over me. And a friend sent me a poem and I was like, let me just open this poem and read it. And the poem just described my experience with such perfection that I just started like weeping copiously in seat, you know, 45B of my flight. And like people are like, this is like at boarding. People are just like walking past me. And I've got like my little crappy pillow, you know, that's just two centimeters thick. And I'm just like, I'm just like, oh my gosh, like Gregory, you're losing it. Uh, but yes, I, I can corroborate the experience of when you have that you know like when somebody reflects back to you like what you experience yeah. with the kind of sympathy without you know like condescension or patronization yeah. but just like a genuine openness to your experience it's just devastating and it could even be yeah. it turns out in the written word yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no that's true yeah beautiful yeah okay well thank you thanks so much for taking the time thanks so much for sharing your thoughts your experience your expertise i'm very grateful for it um Yes. And again. turning now yeah, to you. you. Yeah, thanks. And turning turning now to you, the, the listeners, thanks as always uh, for, for tuning into this episode of God's Planning. Um, Dr. Bruninger, if they want to follow up with you, you mentioned a book, um, you mentioned a clinical practice. Are there other places that they can check in? Yeah, I have a, I have a small YouTube channel that I've been neglecting uh, recently uh, called Ask a Catholic Therapist, um, where you can write in questions and I just try to answer them. Uh, when I'm not being a father or husband or teacher. Um, and uh, and uh, I have a, an Instagram. I'm new to Instagram recently. Same handle, Ask a Catholic Therapist, where I just, if I'm walking somewhere and have a thought, I just record it. And um, it's not beautiful. I really like Instagram for a lot of people is just beautiful. Like, mine's like me holding a baby being like, hey, guys, a, a word about shame. You know, it's like not pretty, but <laughs> you can find me on Instagram. So. Okay. Wonderful. All right. Um, thanks again for tuning into this episode of God's Planning. Please follow God's Planning on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, all the above. Uh, if you would like the episode, subscribe on YouTube or your podcast app.
if you're going to share this episode, a good way to share it is not to say, hey, I think you would like this episode because sometimes people feel aggressed by the fact that you're recommending they listen to something pertaining to therapy. But you say like, hey, I was thinking of and then mention like a brother or a sister or a friend, you know, like that this might be of help with when you, you know, so triangulate. It's a good way, you know, like direct speech, always a helpful thing. Um, just kidding, but seriously. Uh, so yeah, those things all helpful. Um, if you'd like to donate to the podcast through Patreon, follow the link in the description or show notes. And there you will also find links to shop merchandise and to follow up with the Godsplaining events. So we just posted our three retreats for the summer and um, fall. Uh, and the applications are open for our all comers retreat at Malvern Retreat House outside of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. That's June 16th through 18th. We had generous donors uh, around Thanksgiving who made it possible for us to lower the price quite significantly. So we are pumped and we are looking forward to meeting you there uh, and to yeah, growing the friendships which we have begun via the podcast. So know of our prayers for you. Please pray for us and we'll look forward to chatting with you next time on God's Planning. Mm -hmm.